You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 8, Fracture. Thanks for joining me. This week, we'll be continuing the discussion of the French Revolution from Episode 7. If you'll recall, we left off in October 1789 with the Women's March on Versailles, which ended with the royal family's involuntary move to Paris. The opposition was ascendant. The most significant force in French politics was now the Assembly, dominated by liberal nobles and the bourgeoisie. They were busy drafting a constitution for the kingdom and passing liberal reforms. I'd like to start today by skipping a little bit ahead to July of 1790. For the first anniversary of the fall of the Bastille, the revolutionary government threw a party. They called it the Fête de la Fédération, or the Feast of the Federation in English. They really pulled out all the stops. This was meant to be the event of the century. Organizers planned for tens of thousands of attendees. Every National Guard company in the country selected two men to represent their town or village. As the date neared, average people volunteered their services to help get the site ready. The festival would take place on the Champ de Mars, a large public park in the city. The plans called for a huge wooden stage surrounded by a triumphal arch and artificial hills to act as a kind of 18th century stadium seating. There was a lot of earth-moving and building that needed to be done if they were going to make that happen, and everyone pitched in. The middle-class bourgeoisie rolled up their sleeves and worked right alongside their working-class compatriots. Peasants came into the city from the surrounding countryside to do their part. Even some of the nobility chipped in. Women worked right alongside men. Most volunteers were put to work either digging up dirt or moving it to the festival site to build those artificial hills so this period of time came to be nicknamed the Days of the Wheelbarrow. As the date of the festival neared, work continued 24 hours a day. But even with the long hours and the heavy lifting, spirits were high. People sang as they worked, probably helped along by the free wine that was provided to volunteers. There was a powerful desire among all the volunteers, whatever their class background, that the festival work and I think that's reflective of the broader desire of most of the people of France that this whole revolutionary experiment work. The general political mood was fearful, but hopeful. In the days just before the festival, attendees began to arrive, and it soon became clear the event would surpass expectations. Probably over a 100,000 people came to Paris to take part. 
The city was a cramped, overcrowded place that could barely accommodate its own population, so many visitors camped out in the streets. No one seemed to mind, though. Everyone was so overflowing with goodwill that their close proximity just contributed to a kind of carnival atmosphere. Army units marched and paraded for the crowds. There was free food, free wine, music, and dancing. When the day finally arrived, crowds of nearly half a million packed the makeshift outdoor stadium on the Champ de Mars, despite some summer showers. Rain in July may be a bad omen in retrospect. The royal family and the members of the assembly took their seats in special viewing boxes. On the stage was an altar grandly named the Altar of the Fatherland. Beside the altar stood Catholic clergymen, wearing revolutionary tricolor sashes along with their traditional religious vestments. The ceremony opened with a Catholic mass. Then, the Marquis de Lafayette, hero of the American War of Independence and commander of the National Guard, rode up to the stage on horseback, strode up to the altar, drew his sword, and led the members of the assembly in swearing an oath. Quote, We swear to be faithful to the nation, the law, and the king to uphold with all our might the Constitution decreed by the National Assembly and accepted by the King, and to remain unified with all Frenchmen by the indissoluble bonds of brotherhood. End quote. Funny, another event in which Lafayette just happened to find himself at center stage making all kinds of dramatic gestures. Next, Lafayette turned to the crowd and invited them to swear to the same oath. Hundreds of thousands of Frenchmen and women rose to their feet and roared back, I swear. Now it was the king's turn. Louis stood up in his box and read out a statement, quote, I, king of the French, swear to use the power given to me by the constitutional act of the state to maintain the constitution as decreed by the National Assembly and accepted by myself, End quote. It was significant that Louis called himself King of the French rather than King of France. In that minor change of title was the implicit acceptance that the king was a public servant, a political figure in a nation of citizens, not the absolute overlord over a piece of territory. That night, there was more free food and more partying. The festival didn't break up for four more days. The symbolism of the Feast of the Federation was clear. All of France was united in accepting the moderate constitutional monarchy envisioned by men like Lafayette and the bourgeois delegates of the assembly. Political symbolism can be powerful, but unless it speaks to political reality and is backed up by action, it's nothing but hot air. Unfortunately for France, all of the expressions of unity and consensus at the Feast of the Federation were mostly in the latter category. For starters, the constitution everyone had sworn to uphold didn't actually exist yet. Contrary to the united front presented at the festival, the drafting process proved to be extremely contentious, and progress was slow. It would be over a year before the constitutional committee finally finished its work, and the more the document took shape, the less popular it became. As I hope was clear from the episodes on pre-revolutionary France, the country had never really been united and recent events had made those pre-existing social divisions wider and sharper than ever before. When Lafayette had his big moment before the altar of the fatherland, there were already forces in motion that would lead to the complete fracturing of French society. Men like Lafayette hoped they were closing the book on the revolution when they swore that oath on July 14, 1790, 
wealthy liberals had mostly gotten what they wanted, but no one else in the country felt that way. Many poorer and more radical Frenchmen felt reform hadn't gone far enough. Traditional-minded people, particularly many aristocrats and clergymen, believed things had already gone way too far. Different segments of the population had competing, totally incompatible visions for the future of the country. You can't paper over those types of divisions with oaths, rhetoric, or grand gestures. They inevitably have to be fought out, either in the political arena or, failing that, with guns and swords. I'd like to spend the rest of the episode exploring the points of fracture within French society and taking a look at the factions that would compete for control over the country as France sank into civil conflict. First, let's take a look at the counter-revolutionaries. People who were opposed to the revolution were often accused of wanting to go back to the way things had been under the old, dysfunctional, absolute monarchy. But that was only true of a small number of ultra-reactionaries. The smartest and most effective counter-revolutionary leaders were fully aware that a return to the old system was a bad idea and politically impossible. Most of the counter-revolutionaries accepted that France had to change, but they wanted to revitalize and build on the traditional power structure, not demolish it and create something new, as the revolutionaries were attempting to do. The most common and important motivation of the counter-revolution was religion. As you might recall from earlier episodes, Religion in 18th century France was about much more than people's personal, individual consciences and spiritual fulfillment. The Catholic Church played a massive social and political role. The Church was responsible for education, family law, and what we today would call social welfare. Catholic institutions owned about 10% of the land in France, most of which was farmland or valuable urban real estate that had been granted to them by the government to provide a revenue stream to support these works. So it was natural that a discussion about reforming the French political system would involve the church. But no public debate about religion can remain confined to the realm of policy. Whatever the church's other functions, it was closely tied to people's deepest held beliefs and their understanding of themselves, the world, and their place in it. I don't believe any society can have a civil, dispassionate national debate about something that touches on such fundamental existential issues. Believers tended to interpret any measure that reduced the power of the church as an attack on faith itself. Atheists and skeptics tended to interpret any defense of the church as an attack on reason and the public good. Shortly after the fall of the Bastille, the assembly declared freedom of religion and allowed Protestants to hold public office. With our modern values, it can be hard to understand how anyone would have a problem with that, but it genuinely worried some Catholics. Many people in the 18th century believed a country had to have an official state religion and that it was simply impossible to pick more than one. Most Christians today will tell you it's impossible for an individual to be both Catholic and Protestant at the same time. Apologies to any Anglican listeners. And a lot of people back then felt the same principle applied to countries. Understandably, French Protestants tended to support the revolution that had given them social and political equality. This only fueled the conspiracy theories of some fringe Catholics who suspected the whole revolution was nothing but a Protestant plot. In August of 1789, the Assembly passed the Declaration of the Rights of Man and of the Citizen. 
you're not familiar with it, imagine the American Declaration of Independence and Bill of Rights rolled into one. The Declaration gave conservative Catholics even more misgivings. It made a lot of assertions about the role of the individual in the world and in society. The authors had used modern political philosophy to build and justify their arguments. Conservative Catholics believed theology and church law were the only sources of those types of truths. They considered it foolish and dangerous to answer those big questions with secular reasoning alone. And on the most basic level, many Catholics didn't think it was appropriate for an elected legislature to be weighing in on these issues. They believed the church should have a monopoly on those types of big existential questions. To the conservative Catholic hierarchy, the Declaration of the Rights of Man was a kind of ideological invasion, an attempt by the state to seize control of intellectual territory that rightly belonged to the church. The Pope officially denounced the Declaration, but for now, only in private. The Catholics were right to be skeptical of the Enlightenment. Generally speaking, Enlightenment opinion of religion ranged from mildly negative to fanatically opposed and many Enlightenment philosophers singled out the Catholic Church as the worst religious institution of them all. Voltaire, the most popular writer of the Enlightenment, called Catholicism, quote, the most ridiculous, most absurd, and the most bloody religion which has ever infected this world, end quote. He praised Protestantism as a superior system. You might be familiar with the famous line, quote, only when the last king is strangled with the guts of the last priest can mankind hope to be happy, end quote. The phrase has its origins in the writings of the Enlightenment philosopher Denis Diderot, but that wasn't his exact phrasing. This most famous version of the quotation first appeared in a revolutionary newspaper during this period, so that gives you some sense of the type of stuff some of the opponents of the church were publishing. Some of the Enlightenment-influenced members of the liberal opposition had internalized these attitudes, and a lot of the pro-revolutionary press used that type of hyperbolic anti-Catholic rhetoric. Not everyone who wanted to limit the power of the church was working to destroy it, but those attitudes were out there, and conservative Catholics could read them just as easily as liberals. So there wasn't any grand Protestant conspiracy to destroy Catholicism but you can hardly blame people for being a little on edge when there's talk of strangling someone with someone else's entrails. With that background, I don't think there was ever much of a chance of the revolutionaries and the conservative Catholics reconciling, but any chance of avoiding conflict probably went out the window in the winter of 1789, when the government began confiscating church property. This was the Assembly's long-awaited solution to the financial crisis. The seized church property was used as collateral to back a new type of currency called the assignat. France still had a ways to go before it would be on sound financial footing again, but this measure was an important step down that long road. Of course, seizing the property of a private institution probably sounds a little tyrannical to some of you. That's certainly how many Catholics viewed it. But many liberals felt it was justified. From their perspective, these properties had been granted to the church by the government with the understanding that the church would use the money they generated to educate children and provide for the poor. But the church was rife with corruption. Everyone knew it. Even many clergymen openly admitted it and called for reform. The poor starved while bishops feasted on elaborate banquets in their palaces. 
Many educational reformers charged that religious schools focused on molding children into faithful Catholics rather than providing them with a truly well-rounded education or useful skills. In the 19th and 20th centuries, states would mostly take over the social functions of religious institutions, but the revolutionary government of the 1790s didn't really have the capacity to do that. Their solution was to essentially convert French Catholicism into a government agency. Priests would become salaried state employees, and the church would be managed by the government in Paris, in the public interest, of course. Conservatives were already worried that Protestants and Enlightenment-influenced liberals were trying to destroy French Catholicism, and now the liberal-dominated assembly was proposing a full takeover of the church. In their new capacity as employees of the state, priests were required to swear oaths of loyalty to the government. Loyalty to the Pope is a major tenet of Catholicism, particularly for the clergy. The assembly and its supporters claimed the oath did not conflict with the vow of obedience taken by all Catholic priests, but many in the church hierarchy disagreed. Large numbers of priests stalled or outright refused to take the oath. The new state salaries were made contingent on swearing to it, but most of the French clergy still didn't budge. Many of the rank-and-file priests actually supported reform in principle. They suffered maybe more than anyone from the corruption of the church, and remember, only months earlier, many of their representatives in the Estates General had defied the wishes of the church hierarchy to go sit with the delegates of the Third Estate. But most didn't want any part of so-called reforms that threatened the core tenets of their faith. They just wanted greedy bishops to steal less and to be able to stop begging their parishioners for food so they held firm. In the spring of 1790, conservative Catholics organized protests against the government's religious policy. Some of these protests turned violent, producing the first casualties in a conflict that would rage for over a decade. But this show of resistance didn't phase the assembly. In the summer of 1790, they pressed on, passing a comprehensive set of radical new regulations for the French Catholic Church, called the Civil Constitution of the Clergy. Under the Constitution, monastic orders were to be abolished, bishops would be elected by the public, the controversial oath of loyalty to the state would remain, and there was a new additional oath required to be sworn in as a bishop. Only two days after the Civil Constitution of the Clergy was passed, the Feast of the Federation opened with a Catholic Mass they probably shouldn't have bothered. Whatever the priests said or did on that stage, the majority of the French clergy were now permanently alienated from the revolution, and would never bless the assembly. In early 1791, the Pope finally took his opposition to the revolution public, and formally denounced the civil constitution of the clergy. The split between the revolution and the church was now official. Every priest would have to decide whether to obey Rome or Paris. Those who swore the oath were referred to as juring priests. Those who stayed loyal to the Pope were called non-juring priests. You might be surprised to hear that there was actually a significant minority of juring priests. Nearly one in three French clergymen swore the oath and took their state salaries. In a few areas, juring priests were actually the majority, mostly in central and southeastern France and in large towns and cities. But these places were exceptions. Most of the French clergy stayed true to Rome. 
Catholic opposition to the revolution was strongest in Western France, where even many lay people were willing to put their lives on the line to defend the church. Resistance started spontaneously all over the country, typically in sparsely populated rural areas far from major towns. People started small, protesting, refusing to cooperate with the government, and sheltering non-juring priests, who were now legally fugitives. These isolated pockets of resistance grew and coalesced through 1791 and 92. By 1793, the Catholic counter-revolution was a full-blown national movement, capable of raising armies and facing government troops in open battle. The revolutionaries responded with increased hostility to the church and harsh repression against Catholic rebels. This conflict would soon devolve into brutal guerrilla warfare that saw both sides commit atrocities. You could make a good argument that it was here in rural France during the revolution that conservative politics as we know them today were born. In the old days, the traditional rural elite of priests and landowners had simply demanded the loyalty of the peasants. Now, out of power and challenged by the populist rhetoric of the revolutionaries, non-juring priests and their supporters had to actually work to convince the peasantry to support their resistance to the government. They had to invent new arguments to appeal to the peasants on their own terms rather than simply ordering them to obey. The message the most successful counter-revolutionary leaders adopted was simple but potent. They told people the revolutionaries were false prophets, who only represented the interests of the urban bourgeoisie, and that their radical philosophies would lead to the total destruction of religion, which was rural society's most important source of stability and meaning. Whether you agree with it or not, this rhetoric drew people to the cause, and I'd argue this critique of Enlightenment liberalism remains at the heart of Western conservatism today. Catholic resistance varied in intensity over the years, but in one form or another, the Church and the Revolution spent over a decade struggling for control over the country and over the hearts and minds of Frenchmen. Napoleon finally negotiated an uneasy peace with the Pope in 1801, but that would prove to be a temporary truce rather than a real solution to the conflict. The split between secular, pro-Enlightenment France and conservative Catholic France never healed properly. It continued to be a significant factor in politics for over a century, and I think you can still see traces of it in the French political landscape today. Much like the conservative Catholics, the majority of the French aristocracy had been uneasy with the revolution from the beginning. Many of the leading lights of the revolution were actually noblemen, particularly in the early days. Even Louis-Philippe, Duke of Orléans, cousin to the king and head of an important branch of the Bourbon family, was a liberal. But men like Orléans or Lafayette were very rare exceptions. In general, the French aristocracy was hostile to the revolution and deeply loyal to the old order, and by 1790, the counter-revolutionary nobility was becoming more militant. You can see this evolution clearly in the nominal leader of the French aristocracy, King Louis XVI. The king recognized the royal family's move to Paris after the Women's March on Versailles had put them in a dangerous, delicate situation. Louis put on a nice face in public, but used his remaining royal powers to obstruct the assembly wherever he could. In private, he became more bitterly opposed to the revolution by the day. 
Louis was a sincere, pious Catholic, and the escalating conflict between the government and the church was a particular source of anguish for him. The king and his loyal confidants cooked up schemes for coups and civil wars. Louis even wrote letters to foreign monarchs, soliciting their help in toppling the government and restoring his former powers. I think it's pretty hard to look at this and not immediately think treason. But the European aristocracy was in many ways a transnational class. Many nobles had titles or land holdings in more than one country. They often married foreigners for strategic or political reasons, so they had family ties abroad as well. Louis's wife was Austrian. His mother was German. His father's mother was Polish. If you subscribe to the belief that nationality primarily comes from ancestry, the king of the French was barely French at all. Monarchs often addressed each other as cousin. In many cases, this was literally true, given the tangled genealogies of the European nobility, but it reflected the fact that the upper nobility had a tendency to identify with foreigners of the same class over an average person from their own country. Louis wasn't the only aristocrat looking abroad and calling on these transnational connections. On July 17, 1789, three days after the fall of the Bastille, a small party of nobles led by the king's younger brother, the Count of Artois, left Versailles for voluntary exile abroad. In those early days, the flow of aristocrats out of France was only a trickle, but with every radical new reform out of the assembly and every outburst of popular unrest, the number grew. By 1791, there were tens of thousands of French exiles scattered across Europe and the United States. This migration hit the armed forces hard. As you'll recall from episode 6, almost all military officers were aristocrats. Between the beginning of the revolution in 1789 and the outbreak of war in 1792, four out of every five French army officers resigned, either to go abroad or just because they couldn't stomach fighting for the revolutionary government. London was a major destination for counter-revolutionary refugees. The British came to refer to them by the French word for immigrant, émigré, which is how it entered the English language as a generic term for well-heeled political refugees. Just like Russian and Cuban émigrés in recent history, many of the original émigrés plotted to undermine and overthrow the revolutionary government they'd fled. In northern Italy, there was a cell of exiled noblemen who printed monarchist political pamphlets and paid smugglers to bring them into France. A large group of émigrés congregated in the city of Koblenz in western Germany, where they attempted to build an army. They gave it a really cool and intimidating name, the Black Legion, but it was more of a farce than a menace. They probably had more dukes, colonels, counts, and generals than any army in the world but hardly anyone was willing to serve as a private. The ludicrous Black Legion of Koblenz was actually one of the more serious counter-revolutionary operations undertaken by the émigrés. Generally, they were ineffective bunglers. Most of these people had been taken by surprise by the events of the revolution. They had never exactly had their fingers on France's political pulse, and now they were living abroad, literally out of touch, on top of being figuratively out of touch. But no one in France could see how incompetent and ineffectual the émigrés were. 
All the average Frenchman knew was that there were thousands of rich and powerful people out there scheming to invade the country, undermine the government, and restore the hated old regime. Paranoia about émigré plots was endemic, completely out of proportion to their actual capabilities. This misguided fear contributed to many of the most violent and tragic episodes of the revolution. The revolutionary government dealt with émigrés severely. In 1791, they passed a law seizing émigré property and legally banishing them from France under pain of death. You can see why they might be harsh, given that many of the émigrés were actively involved in treason, but the law had the opposite of the desired effect. Data suggests the law did not deter people from emigrating, and legally barring exiles from returning made peaceful reconciliation impossible and hardened their opposition to the revolution. Now they had no hope of seeing home again unless this government was toppled. That's a pretty strong motivator. Ultimately, the émigrés had little direct impact on the course of the revolution or the Napoleonic Wars. Almost every major initiative they undertook themselves quickly turned into some dark comedy fiasco. But they did have an indirect impact by using their money, knowledge, and political influence to help France's enemies. And fear of émigré plots did play a major role in shaping events, even if it was largely unwarranted. Despite all their failures, the émigrés eventually did get what they wanted, even if it proved temporary. The first émigré, the Count of Artois, would be crowned King Charles X of France in 1824, although he would be the last Bourbon king. It's not that surprising that conservative members of the aristocracy and Catholic clergy didn't buy the message of unity sold at the Feast of the Federation. They'd never really been on board with the revolution in the first place, and they had some fundamental disagreements with the vision of France presented by the liberal opposition. But by the summer of 1790, there was another conflict brewing that wasn't so obvious. It was between two groups who were generally supportive of the revolution and had actually acted as allies, the bourgeoisie and the urban poor. It had been easy for these groups to work together in the early days of the revolution. They had a common enemy in the king and his conservative administration, and they agreed on a lot philosophically. Both groups leaned left, very roughly speaking, by which I mean they believed in achieving some kind of progress by transforming the status quo. But even in those early days, there were already signs that this was a loose coalition, not a unified bloc. Remember, the bourgeoisie had actually been pretty terrified by the rioting in July of 1789. They had formed the National Guard to restore order in Paris, not to fight the king. When the poor women of Paris went to confront the king in October of that year, the liberal bourgeois government had called out the National Guard to stop them. If the guardsmen hadn't decided to disobey orders, it might have ended in tragedy. If you asked a bourgeois lawyer or liberal nobleman why he supported the revolution, he'd probably tell you that France had an archaic, inefficient government and needed a new system, maybe something closer to what they had in Britain or the United States. If you asked a Parisian worker the same question, he'd probably tell you that he was poor and worried he'd starve, and that France needed a government that would stop neglecting people like him and take action to improve their material conditions. 
The two groups were united in their opposition to the king and the old system, but their goals and their motivations were not the same. The bourgeois liberals in the assembly felt justified throwing an extravagant party in the summer of 1790 with their Feast of the Federation, because they'd achieved most of their goals. The constitution was nearly complete and had been accepted in principle by the king, feudal privilege was abolished, and civil and political rights were enshrined in law. From their perspective, they had a few more things to wrap up, and then the revolution would be over. Poor Parisians didn't see things that way. Most of them applauded those liberal reforms, but their main goal was economic justice, not constitutional reform. There was still famine and hunger. There was still high unemployment. The slums remained overcrowded, and living conditions remained deplorable. From their perspective, the revolution so far was a nice start, but still hadn't tackled the country's biggest problems. As the revolutionaries gained more power, the political differences between the middle class and the poor became more visible and harder to ignore. It's a lot easier to find consensus criticizing your opponents than it is deciding on policy yourselves. Ironically, it was the civil and political rights so cherished by the bourgeoisie that allowed radical new ideas to gain traction and enabled the poor to build up their own independent political power and reject middle-class moderation. Once the assembly repealed censorship laws, Paris was quickly flooded with new magazines, pamphlets, and newspapers. Plenty of these new publications appealed to the enlightened, moderate, constitutional monarchist sensibilities of the bourgeoisie, but not many people read them. The masses of Paris quickly gravitated towards more extreme writing, the kind of stuff that until recently had been banned and violently suppressed. It seemed the more radical it was, the more people wanted to read it, and publishers rushed to meet the demand. Calls to abolish the monarchy and declare a republic began to appear in print for the first time. Political clubs were another product of this new era of freedom. These were kind of like our modern political parties, but not quite as well organized and without a specific policy agenda. They were associations of like-minded people who gathered to discuss the issues of the day. Just like with the press, the more radical clubs quickly outdid their moderate bourgeois competitors. Groups like the Cordelier Club and the famous Jacobins were cheap to join and worked hard to market themselves and attract new members. Their main bourgeois competitor was the Society of 1789, which had plenty of famous eminent members, including the mayor of Paris, the Marquis de Lafayette, bishops, counts, and eminent philosophers but hardly any average people. The society was great at hosting debates and putting on banquets, but without a large membership to mobilize, they didn't really have much political muscle. Even after the events of July 1789, many of the urban poor still lived day-to-day with intense anger. Pain, struggle, and humiliation were constant features of life in the Paris slums. They were treated with cruelty and indifference by their rulers, and had few legal ways to make themselves heard politically. I think these conditions help explain the repeated outbreaks of sudden, savage violence during the course of the revolution. Everyone has a breaking point. Life was miserable for the urban poor. You have to wonder how many of them at any given moment were at or near their breaking point. For instance, 
History may record that the dismissal of Jacques Necker was the catalyst for the riots that resulted in the storming of the Bastille. But for the average people who participated, some report about Necker was probably just the last of a long chain of personal setbacks and bad news. The ensuing violence probably didn't feel sudden to them at all, just the culmination of a long process that brought them to the point where they couldn't take it anymore and were willing to do something drastic. To take an example, here's a passage from the radical newspaper Révolution de Paris, describing the murder of two royal officials with a reputation for cruelty, a man named Foulon and his son-in-law, Berthier, no relation to the Napoleonic general named Berthier. Fair warning, it's pretty grisly. Quote, The rope was waiting for Foulon. He was already under the fatal street lamp whose post has served as a gallows to so many traitors. He was already suspended. The cord broke, and suddenly it was mended. One thousand hands, one thousand arms were busy with his execution. In brief, he was no more, and his severed head separated far from his body, presenting the horrific spectacle of the bloody prescriptions. This head was carried at the end of a pike through all the streets of Paris. A handful of hay was in its mouth, a striking allusion to the inhumane sentiments of this barbarous man. His body was dragged through the mud and carried all over, announcing the terrible vengeance of a people rightly angry towards the tyrant. Berthier did not imagine he was walking to his execution. But what a horrible scene has just begun. Who would believe it? The bloody head of that loathed outlaw, his father-in-law, is presented to him. Oh, what a dreadful spectacle. Berthier is trembling. Already, Berthier is no more. His head is already nothing more than a mutilated mass, separated from his body. Oh, the gods! The barbarian tears out his heart from his palpitating entrails. End quote. Imagine how angry you would have to be to rip someone's heart out, or even just to see something like that and not be repulsed. Can you? Speaking only for myself, I'm not sure it's possible for someone in my shoes to fully grasp the depths of desperation that might lead someone to do that. Here's how the author of the article grappled with it. Quote, What do I say? He is avenging himself on a monster. This monster killed his father. I feel it, oh my fellow citizens. I feel to what extent these revolting scenes grieve your souls. Like you, they have penetrated me. But consider how ignominious it is to live and to be a slave. End quote. I think that passage shows what the radical press gave the angry, desperate poor of Paris. Middle class politicians and the bourgeois press condemned and reviled their anger. These new radical voices sought to understand it, even validated it to a degree. Many of France's urban poor had lived their whole lives with this sense of rage and helplessness. Up until the revolution, everyone in society with any power or platform had told them they were wrong to feel that way. With the rise of the radical press and political clubs, there was finally someone telling these miserable people that their complaints were justified, that they were right to be angry and there was something they could do about it. It must have been a powerful feeling. The type of middle-class moderates who dominated the assembly just didn't speak this language. They were unhappy with their treatment under the old regime, but they weren't reduced to total desperation. 
being disrespected by high society or having your career ambitions thwarted sucks, but it just isn't the same thing as being starved to death and treated like an animal. No accountant or merchant was going to rip the heart out of a royal official just because their children didn't have access to quite the same educational opportunities as an aristocrat. Not only could the bourgeoisie not identify with the rage of the lower classes, they found it threatening. A lot of these people were property owners and businessmen. They had a lot to lose if that anger came out in the form of destructive riots. Or worse, if the government decided to address poverty by redistributing their wealth. In the early days of the revolution, middle-class revolutionaries had been happy to entertain the complaints of the poor. But once in power, they rejected any proposed solution that might threaten business. The assembly made labor unions and strikes illegal. You could make the argument workers' rights had actually been stronger under the absolute monarchy. The interests and political allegiances of the bourgeoisie and the poor were clearly diverging. In 1791, the assembly attempted to formalize the split by proposing a division of the citizens of France into two different legal categories, active citizens and passive citizens. Only adult men who owned a significant amount of property or other assets would qualify for the active category, and only active citizens would have full political rights. Passive citizens would be legally equal under the Constitution, but banned from voting, holding political office, or serving in the National Guard. France would be a democracy of sorts, but a democracy open to less than 25% of the adult population. The radicals were furious. The popular press was filled with denunciations of the plan. The radical political clubs organized protests. The liberals in the assembly were now just as much a target for popular anger as the king, the aristocrats, and the church hierarchy. So by 1791, French society was divided into mutually antagonistic factions. Most nobles had long ago given up any hope of reconciling with the new government, and were preparing either to leave the country or fight against the government. Out in the countryside, the economy remained bad, and non-juring priests were preaching the gospel of counter-revolution to the peasants. Now that the urban poor were turning their backs on the government as well, there was really not much of a support base left for the assembly or for its vision of moderate constitutional monarchy, just that tiny sliver of white-collar professionals and merchants that most of the delegates came from. France seemed primed to sink into civil conflict, but nothing happened right away. People were angry and miserable and hated each other, but even in that state, it takes a big push to convince someone to take up arms and start killing people. So there was an odd lull. Things stayed bad, but the country had to wait for that final push to send them over the precipice. As I mentioned last episode, King Louis had become obsessed with King Charles I of England, who had launched the English Civil War when Parliament attempted to limit his powers. Specifically, Louis was obsessed with studying Charles's failures, because he hoped to follow in his footsteps but avoid the end of the story where Charles was beheaded. The king wrote and thought about this idea for years. Then, on June 20th, 1791, he put it into action. The plan was for the royal family to slip out of the Tuileries Palace, 
rendezvous with loyal military units, who would then escort the king to the Austrian border, where the Austrian emperor, Queen Marie Antoinette's brother, had been kind enough to assemble an army to invade France and restore the king to his former powers. But, true to form, Louis botched it. The royal family missed their rendezvous with those loyal troops. They continued on alone, but there was no one to protect them when a pro-revolutionary citizen recognized them and alerted authorities. Louis and his family were taken into custody and returned to Paris. The affair is known to history as the Flight to Varennes, after the town where Louis was caught, which has always annoyed me. Louis was actually fleeing to the Austrian border. He was extremely dismayed that Varennes wound up being his final destination. An investigation ensued, and the scope of Louis's duplicity and treason soon became clear to the revolutionary government. Amazingly, there were no immediate consequences. The government kept Louis's secret, for the moment. They knew they were in a combustible political situation. Punishing the king too severely, or revealing the magnitude of his crimes, might be a big enough spark to set off the entire country. But the common people of Paris were not having it. For months now, the radicals had been arguing the king and his supporters could not be trusted. And now he had been caught red-handed engaged in treason. The exact details may have been secret, but the broad strokes were incredibly obvious. It was well known there was an Austrian army massing on the border, and Louis had been running straight towards it. You don't need to read Louis's letters to figure out what was going on. And now the assembly was pretending it hadn't happened, just letting him get away with it, letting him go right back to plotting the downfall of the revolution. The radical press and political clubs urged people to protest and demand a republic. Tens of thousands answered the call. On July 17, 1791, a tragic incident drove the bourgeois government and the masses of Paris even further apart. A detachment of National Guard troops sent to contain these demonstrators opened fire, killing dozens. The massacre took place at the Champ de Mars, the site of the Feast of the Federation almost exactly a year earlier. The symbolic significance could not have been clearer. All that talk of unity at the festival had been nothing but a pipe dream. Instead, there would be a struggle for power. The only questions now were how much blood would be shed and who would come out on top. Society was divided into irreconcilable factions, and the issue of what to do with the king was looming over everything. A violent showdown was almost certainly inevitable. I think that's a good stopping place. I hope that set the stage for the next period of the revolution, the radical phase. This is the part of the revolution that's deeply imprinted in the popular imagination. War, persecutions, guillotines, and the terror. It's also the period in which Napoleon will make his first appearance. So I think this is a good point to switch over to his perspective and start looking at these events through his eyes. A couple quick updates before I go. The bonus episode will be coming soon. I've got a special guest lined up, and I think you guys will really enjoy it. The other big news is that the show finally has a website. It's pretty bare-bones as of this recording, but visit ageofnapoleon.com if you want to check it out. That's all for now. Thanks for listening.